And we're back, just like that. It looks different if you're watching on YouTube. Go to War Room Media to check that out. You can see my full office here. Uh, yeah, we're back. And so I've been wanting to change the introduction to this podcast for a few episodes now. Uh, and this felt like the right time. A couple reasons. One, um, I mentioned the Ryan Recommends segment I wanted to do. And I haven't been doing that. So I need to get back to doing that. Two, sponsors. We got sponsors. And so we need to make sure we include our sponsors. Three, I want to talk to the listeners, just me sometimes. And so, um, and this episode is probably one of those. So first off, um, let's do the Ryan Recommends. Okay. And I got it. China's Civilian Army by Peter Martin. I had to find the book, the dust jacket, put them together because I usually separate them upon reading them. This book is fantastic. Fantastic. It is dense. It's not a light read, especially if you're trying to follow the footnotes and stuff like that. It can be a slow pace, but you can read it lightly. I've just been taking notes and trying to appreciate all that's in here. That's it. China's Civilian Army by Peter Martin. Be sure to check it out. I will link to the show notes. It's Amazon affiliate code, which helps your boy out and helps sell books for Peter. He did a great job. Go thank him on Twitter. Okay, so that's Ryan Recommends. Sponsor, 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 sponsor. Help me out here. Thank our sponsor, which is Bluehost. You can get a sweet deal. Sweet deal on hosting. This is who I use to host my stuff. If you go to RyanRaySenior.com, that's R-Y-A-N-R-A-Y-S-R.com slash hosting. Yeah, that's it. RyanRaySenior.com slash hosting. $2.95 a month. That's right, $2.95 a month. It helps me out. I would really appreciate it if you consider getting hosting using Bluehost and my link. Okay, now, why I'm doing this for this episode, this is important. First off, this podcast is graphic. It is about child sex abuse, um, and so we talk about that some in adult details, right? So this is market explicit, um, so think about that um, from that standpoint. The second thing is... Um, I want you to make sure you hear the audience that I want to cultivate here is one that's open to thinking and dealing with complex subjects. And that's, that's, that's not seen a lot in our day, but I think you guys and gals are the right audience for this. So here's my thing with this case. Um, after listening to his podcast, I think whatever I think about Sandusky's overall innocence aside, that's a separate issue. The issue is the trial for me. And the trial is you have eight or 10, I can't remember, um, cases being tried at once that all happened at separate times and separate places, right? So it's not like you robbed a bank and you went in and you held 100 people hostage and you're on trial for holding 100 people hostages, hostage. And so there's 100 cases, right? That's not the case. So it seems that the fair thing to do is have eight or 10 or whatever is different trials to make sure that you get um, proper justice. That's the first thing. That didn't happen. The second thing is, in two of the cases, which you will t- we talk about at length in the podcast, there's no victim. And so, to be clear, I have four children. This topic, it pains me to think about. And um, I want these people to rot in the pit of hell that do this forever and ever and ever. So that needs to be said. But with that being said, we need to make sure that we are convicting people who are guilty. And so when you don't have a witness in this case, and there's no other evidence that says that this happened, Right. I mean, sorry, you have a witness. Let me rephrase that. When you have a witness, but you, there's no other evidence. There's no uh, victim. There's no blood. There's no semen. There's no urine. There's no clothes. There's no nothing. Right. Um, 
that's a little concerning. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. It's just how then do we prove it? So if Bob says Tom did this, and that's all we have, and there's nothing else, that's concerning. So for that reason, when I talk about this on the podcast, um, Sandusky should get a retrial. And if those victims can be found, they should come forward. If they can't be found, then they should be removed from the trial process. Now, the rest of the, of the victims, um, or alleged victims, whatever we call them, you know, go listen to John's podcast with the benefit of hindsight. See what you think. That's your own conclusion. Um, go listen to other sides. And this is my point that I was trying to make with John at the end. Uh, proverb that says, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. I don't have the, the I don't have it at my disposal to examine everything that John says. He's got 50 hours of podcasting, and it's fantastic. Go listen to it um, if you're a true crime fan for sure. So I can't examine him, right? I can't put everything that he says up to the microscope and actually determine what's true, what's not. He's like a stand-up guy. I had no problem with him. Um, I'm not trying to say anything bad about him. What I'm saying is I can't examine it all, right? What I can what I can say is that it, that if there's no victim for number two, number eight, or ten, whatever it is, then those, and they were tried at the same time, then those are reasons for a retrial. And then all the things that John's alleged can come out in trial, and we can see what happens. And I think that's a fair summation of justice. And if Sandusky did it, hanging by his toes. And if he didn't do it, then he should walk. And the people who accused him should be hanged by their toes or hunger, whatever the word is there. Anyways, so that's it. Now, one final thing before we get to the show. We had a little bit of audio issues. It pops up from time to time. It's not the end of the world. Suffer through it. I couldn't help it. It's just how the recording ended up and these things happened. Um, with that being said, John Ziegler is a columnist at Mediate and the co-host of With the Benefit of Hindsight podcast. You can find him at Zygmunt Freud on Twitter. I'll link to all of that in the show notes. Guys, love to hear your feedback. Went out on, on, went out on a limb here. Hope you enjoy this. It's different. We want to have more of these conversations, not about this topic, but more interesting conversations as we move, as we move along. Um, and with that, here is John Zygmunt. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I've been pumped about this. I reached out to you. It's been a few weeks ago, and I said I'm going to listen to – it's like 50 hours of podcasts that you put out. It's an, it's an impressive amount. I went down to Biloxi, Mississippi, and back. It's like 18 hours on the road. I knocked out a bunch then. I finished the last 45 minutes this morning. The show is uh, with the benefit of hindsight. It's, like, it's, what, 50 hours, right? 50 hours with, between you and Liz? A little bit more than uh, 50 hours with me and my co-host, Liz Habib, the uh, former sports anchor at the Fox affiliate here in Los Angeles for about the last 15 years. Okay, so I am knee-deep in this, not like you are, but enough that, I, A, I remembered what happened because I'm a huge sports fan. But also, I've talked to people, and they're like, Joe Paterno, Sandusky, I kind of remember something, Paterno died. Uh, <laughs> let's at a high level, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this, and one more reminder, um, John is free to say whatever he wants. This is a graphic story and tale we're getting into, so if you got kids in the car, hit the eject button now. But John, reset the table. What happened uh, God, was a decade ago now with uh, Joe Paterno, Penn State, and Jerry Sandusky? Well, part of the reason why we put out the podcast with the benefit of hindsight uh, this year is because this year is the 10th anniversary of probably the biggest sports story, clearly the biggest college sports story so far of this century. And it's known largely as the so-called Penn State Joe Paterno Jerry Sandusky scandal. And what happened uh, in the public's mind 
in the media's mind was that in November of 2011, Jerry Sandusky was arrested on numerous counts of child molestation. And within a couple of days of that, uh, the great Joe Paterno, who had just become the winningest coach in the history of college football and who had been at Penn State as the head coach for literally half a century, uh, was unceremoniously fired, as was the president of the university, Grant Spanier, also fired. And two administrators at Penn State, Gary Schultz and Tim Curley, were effectively fired and they were also indicted in an alleged cover-up. And this was a nuclear bomb that went off, not just in Pennsylvania, but throughout the country. And for several years, the ramifications of that story uh, snowballed in, in one of the biggest scandals, allegedly, uh, that's ever happened in sports, at least here in America. And I realized that 10 years is a long time and that many people have forgotten about this. But uh, my BS detector on this story from the cover-up standpoint, especially regarding Joe Paterno, went off immediately because this story never made any sense. What we were told in November 2011 was that 10 years prior to that, uh, on a date that, by the way, turned out to be wrong, not just once, but I strongly believe twice, a former graduate assistant at Penn State by the name of Mike McQuery had supposedly witnessed Jerry Zandowski sexually assaulting, raping what he thought to be a 10-year-old boy in a Penn State shower, told Joe Paterno about it the next morning, and Joe Paterno and Penn State basically effectively did nothing, uh, allowing Jerry Sandusky to go on uh, sexually abusing boys for maybe another 10 years before he was finally arrested. That narrative is bizarre, uh, and let's be clear, uh, bizarre things happen all the time, uh, strange things happen all the time, uh, you know, O.J. Simpson uh, killed two people. Uh, that was bizarre. But guess what? Uh, there was an enormous amount of evidence that that happened. And when you learn more about the story, uh, you know, it actually made some semblance of sense in his world. And so um, I use the O.J. case because, one, everyone knows about it. And two, uh, I've always believed, in fact, the more I've gotten into the Penn State paterno Sandusky case, the more I believe that the OJ case and the Sandusky case are basically polar opposites of each other in almost every way. I mean, they both somewhat deal with football because they were football personalities. But uh, in one situation, you know, OJ Simpson, there was a mountain of evidence uh, and the media tried to pretend that there was some question as to whether or not he was guilty because they knew it was good for their ratings and the drama uh, and, uh, you know, and OJ was able to use his celebrity and wealth uh, to be able to beat the rap. In this particular situation, everything's the opposite. There was no benefit of the doubt. There was for anybody, and not even Joe Paterno, who certainly deserved it. Uh, and there was an immediate rush to judgment in guilt. There was no evidence against anybody. And uh, I was someone who presumed at the start that Jerry Sandusky was guilty. That's where I began my investigation from that premise. And now, uh, you know, long before now, but certainly now 10 years later, I'm positive that there's there's no evidence of anyone's guilt because no one did anything wrong. And that in this case, 
believe it or not, the the black hats uh, are being worn by the good guys in the media's perception, and the white hats are being worn by the bad guys. Everything is flipped upside down. And it's all because of a media rush to judgment 10 years ago in the middle of a panic. And I would suggest that uh, the last year and a half with regard to what's happened to COVID has shown us that human beings are very prone to uh, coming to false conclusions in the middle of a panic and then being unwilling to reverse themselves because they're invested in a particular narrative. While there's obvious differences and obviously COVID is real, uh, I think there are a lot of uh, similarities between how the media has handled that story and how the media handled this story. And in the bottom line of it is, believe it or not, five very good men had their lives destroyed uh, for no good reason. And it's not even close. That's maybe the most amazing part about the whole thing to me is that this isn't even like a close call. I mean, we've seen many, uh, you know, of these convicted criminals become celebrities like the making a murderer guy uh, who's guilty as hell, in my opinion. But Netflix makes him into a, a somewhat of a hero because they've been able to raise some doubt about whether or not he really is a, a murderer. Uh, but it's obviously not clear cut, even in Netflix's, uh, the Netflix's documentaries perspective. In this situation, it's not even close. It's not even close if you use the rational brain and you look at the facts and you understand how this narrative developed. Uh, and and I guess maybe the most important thing people need to understand about my perspective on this is I am an anti-conspiracy person. I'm ardently anti-conspiracy uh, in almost every way. Now, there are some small two-person conspiracies, if you want to call them that, in this story. But there is no large conspiracy. This was a perfect storm of events that all came together in a way that uh, could not be reversed, largely because the media is broken in this country. And uh, and it's, again, I can't emphasize enough, it's not even close. And I'm not alone in my belief in this. I've convinced a lot of very, very high-profile people uh, very close people, very close to this case. Malcolm Gladwell's last best-selling book, "Talking to Strangers," has a chapter about this case in which he uses my work rather uh, liberally um, and I think effectively. Although there's some problems I have with with how Malcolm handled uh, the situation, I think he tried to protect himself because I I believe he knows. Uh, that Sandusky is innocent, but he can't say that because it's the third rail. You 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 get destroyed if you say it. Yet we have a lot of prominent people on this podcast with the benefit of hindsight who are willing to say publicly uh, that Jerry Sandusky is innocent, including Gary Schultz in his only interview he's ever done, one of the Penn State administrators who was indicted in this case, uh, and including two former members of the Penn State Board of Trustees who are very high-profile people, very well-respected, very successful business people, Al Lord and Bob Capretto, the, the founder of the Second Mile Charity, Bruce Heim, who believed that Jerry was guilty when this first hit has now flipped and now believes very strongly that Jerry is innocent. Uh, and, um, you know, and there was a book called The, the Most Hated Man in America by Mark Pendergrast, a very prominent author who was shocked that his book was ignored. I, although I told him your book is going to get ignored because I have been at the front lines of the war on, on this story. And I know 
how impossible it is to tell the truth on this. But I'm hardly alone. Uh, there are mo almost, in fact, everybody who has looked at this closely and objectively has come to effectively the same conclusion. They might express it slightly differently because they're afraid of the political ramifications. But this didn't happen. And uh, the only way to make sense of the evidence is that it didn't happen. I, and to me, I, I'm amazed you were able to listen to all of the podcasts in a short period of time. So congratulations on that. But to me, two speed. <laughs> but, but, but to me, the, the, the strength of the podcast, and it has many strengths. It's a remarkable achievement on the mm. part of everybody involved, including our executive producer, Mac, Mike Agavino and Liz Abib, our co-host. But to me, the strength of it is, is we take these a thousand puzzle pieces that the media put together in a puzzle that made no damn sense. Uh, you know, the, the pieces don't fit. Mm -hmm. The picture that they created may, is all garbled. And we rearrange the puzzle pieces. And I believe that by the end of the podcast, with the benefit of hindsight, most people will go, oh, wow. Okay, that version of the puzzle makes a hell of a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. in its totality, and they fit together a heck of a lot better than the fairy tale we were told. So that's a, a very long synopsis of... No, the it's, it's a 50-hour podcast, so, <laughs> you know, right. it needs a long synopsis. And so for the listeners, you're going to have to go listen to this. We have uh, about 50 minutes left in this podcast, and so um, we will get to... We'll, we'll scratch the surface. Um, I will say, I told John this off air, I'll say it on air, after, if you go back and find old posts, which I don't know if you still can or not, I was pretty much, hey, this, this is terrible. Throw them under the bus. So that was my stance back in 20, you know, uh, 11, 2010, whatever. Um, I think the podcast for me, you bring out OJ Simpson. I think that's an interesting parallel. So the OJ Simpson, and one of the big regrets I have was I was going to get on F. Lee Bailey. I was going to reach out and have him on the podcast. And he died. And I was like, oh, man, I, I wanted to get him on to talk about this. My read of the OJ stuff is that OJ did it. No doubt about it. However, if you believe in justice, and I think this is the point that I want to talk about on the Sandusky thing is, then you have to have a high view of justice, which means you want prosecution standards to be high, the judge standards to be high. Everything in the process needs to be uh, uh, on the up and up. And in the OJ case, it seems that the prosecution at times did things that should allow a, a um, an acquittal on that basis, not necessarily whether he did or not. I know, okay, you disagree. We'll, we'll have another OJ debate another time. Uh, that's fine. But the Sandusky thing, I think that's part of where I would say here. And so let's talk about a couple of things. Um, first, let's talk about Mike McCreary because that's kind of the name you might hear. He was the former Penn State quarterback. He kind of broke the story. And what I didn't realize is two things. I didn't, And so let me talk about my, my evolution on this as well, is that back when this broke, I was willing to believe that institutions would cover up for things because institutions cover up for things all the time. I wasn't at the point to think about the government being an institution and it covers up or it's inadequate, it's incompetent. I wasn't really open to maybe that idea. And so um, there's been a lot of things that have happened, as you mentioned, over the past decade that makes you reframe that. Um, but victim number two, so there's at trial, there's 10 victims on trial, right? Victim number two is Mike McQuarrie, the one that we hear about in the shower. It's terrible. Mike McQuarrie doesn't do anything. He goes talk to Paterno. Paterno doesn't do anything. And Paterno, you know, says when he gets fired, say a little prayer for the victims. And you're like, oh, what, what is going on here? It like, they have to be guilty. 
And then you come out and you say, you tell me, victim number two wasn't at the trial? <laughs> victim, like, what? How? I mean, I know in murder cases you can have a victim with no body, but in this case, like, this is really weird. Now, there's <laughs> another other victim we got to get to, but victim number two is really weird. Well, thank and you. Why, for- and real quick, why were they all tried together? That's something that needs to be talked about as well, because if he's guilty, then fry him. I have no problem with that. But these weren't, this wasn't, the, the allegation is not that Jerry Sandusky had eight to 10 little boys in a room and sexually assaulted them all at one time. It's at different times, which should, in my opinion, require separate trials so you can hear each case on its own merit. But anyways, victim two, go ahead. Let me take that last point first, because I agree with you totally from a legal perspective. And I've had conversations with the Jackson about this issue. I mean, constitutionally, it makes no sense to me at all. It's not fair, this cumulative effect. And the cumulative effect absolutely was the final nail, the primary nail in Jerry Sandusky's coffin, because I can't tell you how many hundreds of times in the last 10 years when people are faced with the, the reality of there being no evidence in this case, their only fallback is, well, they all can't be lying. Well, what if they all got paid millions of dollars? Which happened. <laughs> every single one of them got paid millions of dollars. Every single one of them had lawyers and therapists pushing them in this direction. And none of them told a story that made any sense uh, or had any evidence to back it up. Now, let's. I'm glad you put your finger on victim two because to me, victim two is the whole case. If there was a legitimate victim two, I probably never would have even gotten involved in this case, even from the perspective of defending Joe Paterno, which is where I began. Because if the whole thing comes down to Mike McQuarrie. That was 98% of the media narrative when the story broke. This horrible story of Mike McQuarrie allegedly went witnessing a boy getting raped in the shower and telling Joe Paterno about it. Well, I would suggest that if this really happened, and by the way, I I mean, most people that I speak to understand the absurdity of of the idea that Mike McCurry saw this and did nothing himself, right? That's the story. The story story is Mike just saw it, went, hmm, boy, that's that's too bad for that kid. Uh, I got to get going. Um, And that's, I mean, that's not exaggeration. That's his story. Let me pause you right here because because this and again this is graphic. We're gonna talk about the other eight victims in a second, but this is graphic, and it's important to note. This is why we have to think about these terms. And your podcast, I thought, does a good, good job. Of this what he's seeing is not two consenting adults having sex with all the pleasures you might hear along with that, right? What he's witnessing is a boy being raped. Is his allegation, which means that it's going to be. Because there's no, you talk about this a lot, there's no no allegations of drugs or alcohol. So this would be a boy who is probably in tears, begging for his life, basically. And Mike McQuarrie is the biggest coward to ever walk this planet. If his story is true, no, no, if his story is true, just to be right. clear, when and he leaves, he's leaving a boy who was not drugged, who is not, who is not unconscious, who is probably there crying for his life, um... I've got a 13 year old son begging for his dad or mom or someone to come save him. And McQuarrie, the coward, if his story is true, 
that's who, that's who Mike McQuarrie is. Now, I know you don't believe that, but just so we're clear, everyone right. get a good hatred for Mike McQuarrie before we go on. Well, and and, and also to be clear, Mike McQuarrie is, I, I think he was 27, 28 years old. He's six foot four. He's 225, 30 pounds in tremendous shape. Jerry Sandusky is, uh, I guess, 60 years old. And he would destroy Jerry Sandusky. I mean, this yeah. it's an absurdity. So, Again, absurd things happen. Sure, but there should be evidence. And by the and by the the, the median average has always been McQuarrie panicked. Okay, um, first of all, that's a hell of a panic. Uh, this is a guy who played quarterback for a football team that played in front of a hundred thousand people and on national television. Not exactly someone prone to panic. Okay, <laughs> so all right, but if if this was true. There, there should be at least two things, at least two things that go along with this story. Number one is, tell me when it happened. When did it happen? This should be very easy. This is not something you would ever forget. You would mark time by it, especially if Penn State ended up covering this up and you thought that this poor boy that you saw had been raped at this low legend this is not a forgettable moment all right this is this is huge if if true and this scars you for life we know for one thousand percent certainty McQuarrie first testified incorrectly about the date the month and the year okay he originally testified that there was this was march 1st 2002 Occasionally, unbelievably, you'll still see media reports that use the March 1st, 2002 date, even though before Jerry Sandusky's trial, the prosecution was forced and the media basically covered this up. I mean, it was reported, but not with trumpets, because when I saw the headline, I'm like, what? (laughs) What? We were acknowledging the prosecution is. Mike McQuarrie got the date, the month, and the year wrong. They go, oops. Uh, actually, it was February 9th of 2001. So almost 13 months earlier than Mike McQuarrie testified to. And the reason why they knew that was because they got emails. Now, they got emails from Gary Schultz, one of the administrators who was indicted, who's done his only interview with me, done two of them for about four hours in total. You can find them. They're amazing at our website, framingpaterno.com. Uh, and this was not some sort of a cover-up. He voluntarily gave these emails up when he found them after the, the crap had hit the fan. And so they no longer could stand by the March 1st, 2002 date. But they had they were locked into the February 9th date. Why? Not because there was independent evidence of February 9th. Not because they found cell phone records of Mike McQuarrie calling his dad that night, which is what his story is. That would be evidence, right? If there was a phone call, if there was a cell phone record of Mike McQuarrie calling his dad's cell phone at like 9.45 on the evening of February 9th of 2001, I would go, okay, interesting. That's that's evidence. I need more, but that's evidence. That's never been produced. No, the reason why February 9th becomes the day is because they know Mike goes to see Joe Paterno the morning of February 10th. 
10th. They know that via emails. If Mike doesn't go to see Joe the next morning, there's no urgency. And if there's no urgency, Mike didn't see a rape because everybody knows. you don't. First of all, if you really see a rape, you beat the shit out of Jerry Sandusky and you immediately go to the police. You don't wait the next morning to go see Joe Paterno. But if you give Mike McQuarrie every possible benefit of the doubt, he panics, he goes and talks to his dad and Dr. Dranoff is dad's friend and his dad's friend testifies three times that Mike told him he never saw a sex a sex act which is incredibly important um hold on, hold on, but if, if, if you give Mike every benefit you, you you said he tells his dad and who Dr. Dranov his dad's and doctor, friend doc, and so that's a DR doctor which would mean that the DR doctor has to do what if he heard of this He's a mandated reporter. He's a mandated reporter if Mike tells him he saw a sex act. And and Dranoff testified numerous times that three times he asked Mike, did you see a sex act? And Mike said no. And that's all that's all on the record. Uh, and so and and so if we give Mike every benefit of the doubt, he waits to the next morning to go see Joe Paterno. That's the best the prosecution can do. They know that if there's more than a delay of the next morning then I'm sorry, no one's buying that Mike McQuarrie saw a rape. Now, my biggest, both my biggest mistake, and I've made many, and and my greatest success, I haven't had that many, uh, in this case are this, over the same episode, which is I now know what the real date was. And Malcolm Gladwell has documented this in his book, Talking to Strangers. My mistake was I should have been able to figure this out a lot sooner than I did. I was probably the only person in a position, although I will I will say that Jerry Sandusky and his attorney, Joe Amendola, should have been able to figure this out on their own. But um, but they're morons. Um, and but of the people not uh, in that that group, I was probably the only person privy to all the information, because I had interviewed Jerry Sandusky in prison extensively. I'd spoken to Amendola. I knew the story of victim two. I should have been more skeptical, because when I interviewed Jerry Sandusky in prison the first time, back in 2013, I came out of there, first of all, with my head spinning. But I was positive, positive of one thing, more than any other of the hundreds of things that we had discussed. And that is that Jerry Sandusky knew in his bones that the February 9, 2001 date, the second February date, was still wrong. And I should have trusted that. But remember, I'm thinking Jerry's a serial pedophile and that nothing he's saying can be taken at face value. But I knew in his bones he believed that that date was not correct. Now, why he couldn't figure out what the real date was and why it took me to do it and why I, I unfortunately tabled that investigation for years when it could have theoretically mattered uh, is all a mystery to me. Um, but frankly, my my great mistake was that I trusted that the prosecution couldn't possibly have screwed this up so catastrophically twice, but they did. The real date of this episode that was not a rape of a boy in the shower was on December 29th of 2000. And we know this for a myriad of reasons. We deal with it extensively in our first episode of with the benefit of hindsight. And 
And again, it's documented in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers. And what then happens is, is there's a six-week delay from the time that McQuarrie sees what he saw in the shower for three seconds by his own testimony and tells Joe Paterno about it. And something happens which triggers Mike McQuarrie going to see Joe Paterno. And it's not seeing a rape in the shower on February 9th. It's learning on February 9th that the job he wanted desperately as a graduate assistant, the Kenny Jackson wide receivers coaching position, had just opened up because Jackson took a job with the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's why Mike McQuarrie went to go see, primarily, why he went to go see Joe Paterno on that Saturday morning. And we know, and by the way, the job, the Kenny Jackson job is so important in so many ways. Number one, it's the real motivation for why he goes to see Joe Paterno. Number two, it blows up the cover-up theory because in a cover-up, the first thing that would happen is that Joe Paterno would say, wow, Mike, whew, that's horrible. Uh, thanks so much for coming to us with this information. By the way, uh, keep it to yourself. And congratulations, you're our new wide receivers coach. Uh, and that's what would happen. None of that happened. Mike didn't get the job. Yeah, real quick, just be, yeah, because you made the point sometimes on the podcast, and it's important. Um, I think if you've been around sports or you're thinking about in terms of a cover up, it makes sense. But if you're just kind of casually listening, you might miss it. What you're saying is, is if McQuarrie saw something, he's a grad assistant, which is bottom of the barrel on a college football coaching staff. He wants a real job. He now has leverage over the great Joe Paterno. He comes to Joe Paterno and says, I, I'm, A, I need a job. Oh, by the way, I saw this. If Paterno says no, Okay, and Paterno is going to cover for Sandusky. So those two things are going to happen, which is what we're saying. He says no to the job, and he's going to cover for Sandusky. Then he's got McQuarrie loose in the wind here who could blow his cover at any time. Theoretically, that's what you're alleging. Exactly. And by the way, he can go to the media. He could uh, get another job at another uh, school and then blow the whistle. Uh, I mean, there are all sorts of problems here and thank you for understanding the nature of the graduate assistant position i don't i think that's one of the many things that the media and the public did not understand you are a nobody i mean you are a, a effectively a glorified intern mm -hmm. and oh, yeah. so mike mike does not get the job but just to be clear because you might be thinking well maybe he didn't want that job maybe he wasn't qualified for it he ends up getting that job three years later when it opens up a second time yeah. so yeah. So this is clearly a job that he wanted, that he felt he was qualified for, that he eventually even Paterno decided he was qualified for. But you do not leave if you're running a cover-up. I mean, come on. Right. Joe Paterno is a good Italian. I'm sure he's watched plenty of mafia movies. <laughs> the, the, the last thing you do with your only witness uh, of a cover-up is to let, let him hang in there without even a job. So, so right. it's an absurdity. And um, and again, I, I don't want to waste all the time explaining why I know December 29th is the date. By the way, now Jerry Sandusky himself has finally said, oh, gosh, yeah, I guess that was the date. Um, uh, Jerry, uh, Gary Schultz now believes that that was the date. Uh, this six-week delay is devastating to the entire uh, narrative. Now, the second thing, the second thing you would demand if this story was true, I said the first is when did it happen? And they fail catastrophically on that point. The second thing you would demand in an evidence-based world is, okay, who was boy? Now, now in a in a normal case, in a normal case, ten years later, 
I could understand not being able to theoretically find the boy. That would be weird, but it would be possible. Maybe the boy's afraid. He doesn't want to admit uh, that he was raped. Uh, I, I get all that. I'm, I'm, I am incredibly understanding of, a, of alleged victims. You want to say something? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, I want to say something because, so, yes, all those things you say are true. He could be embarrassed. He could be ashamed. Um, he could be, you know, scarred for life. That could all be true. However, the problem here is, and this is what I'm talking about a retrial, this is to be clear, is that when you're saying that John saw Ryan do X and John's the only witness in the world and it's the only real evidence is an eyewitness and there's no other evidence of a crime, that is a standard that a society cannot, cannot function under. Now, if John saw Ryan murder someone and that body is missing, Maybe that's one thing, but in this case, we're going off of Mike McQuarrie saying he saw something horrific that right. they all should burn the pit of hell if it's true. No one's denying that. Right. But how do you know Mike McQuarrie is telling the truth? And that, when I talk about the burden at, at, at the at the court right. level, that's all I'm referring to is that, and, and you, you document the podcast that this guy wrote letters. He drove ten hours to. Uh, well, I, I want to. I want to get there. Oh, I mean, yeah. I want to get there, but and I think your point is a valid one. But let me just take it another step. So, it might never ending efforts to be understanding of alleged uh, accusers or victims and the prosecution. I give them every benefit of the doubt, but this is not a normal case, and this cannot be emphasized enough. There is zero chance that the boy in the shower has not heard that Jerry Sandusky has been arrested, right? In a normal case, that's possible. In this case, it's not, because it is the biggest story in the nation for a long time. And so unless victim two is dead, which would be highly unusual, because by Mike McQuarrie's account, he's 20 years old, although he's actually a little bit older than that, because McQuarrie got the age wrong by about three years. Uh, so th so there's no chance, zero chance that uh, that he doesn't, the, the boy in the shower doesn't know that Jerry has been arrested. And also there's two other things here. Jerry has lost all presumption of innocence. He's lost all power. There's nobody defending him. So there's no fear that somehow you're going to be maligned as uh, a, a victim of Jerry Sandusky, you're being given anonymity. I mean, no one's name is being made public. The media is protecting the the accusers with everything they possibly have in ways that, in my view, made the, the entire case uh, dysfunctional. Um, and then there's the final element that makes this case unique. Penn State has made it very, very clear immediately that millions and millions the dollars are on the table. So if you are the boy in the shower, you know oh, for sure Jerry has been arrested. You know that uh, he's going down and that you're going to be protected. And you know that there are millions of dollars in this for you to tell your story. So therefore, the idea that you can't find the boy in the shower is preposterous. And the prosecution told the jury in closing arguments, that the identity of the boy in the shower, so-called victim number two, is known only to God. That's a quote. Only to God. That was 
not just not true. That was a lie. They knew who the boy, or at least they absolutely should have known who the boy in the shower was. He's a guy by the name of Alan Myers, who was 13 years old, almost 14 years old at the time of this episode on December 29th of 2000. And his words, and more importantly, his actions, his actions make it absolutely impossible in a rational world to believe that he was ever abused by Jerry Sandusky in any sort of way. In fact, I don't think you could concoct, if you tried, a profile of, of persona, of words, and of actions that are more inconsistent with somebody who was sexually abused by Jerry Sandusky. You already alluded to some of that. I don't know if you want me to go through the list or not. But he did not testify at trial. No one testified at trial as victim number two, not because they didn't know who he was, but because the prosecution did not like his story. Because by that point, he had already made his story very public in letters to the editor in two different newspapers in Pennsylvania, as well as in a police interview in September of 2011, in which he ended the interview by saying, I think you're trying to get me to lie about Jerry Sandusky. I will never say anything bad about Jerry Sandusky. Those yeah. are the words of Alan Myers. We now know, because he's the only person who ever claimed to be the boy in the shower. And after the trial, he got paid, I think it was almost $8 million for his story, even though he never testified uh, at trial. So. Um, so the so and when did the, he come out? Story, <laughs> when did when did Alan Myers become public as victim number two? How long after the the right after the, the trial? Right, a, like a month later. Right after the trial. Right, so he right. was so like a clear. month at most. A month. Yeah. yeah. So just to set well, the table. And, 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 yeah, I was saying just set the table. We're listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My real quick, my argument is we have to have a retrial because we have to have a high standard of justice. Here you have a guy testifying for a victim that doesn't exist. Oh, by the way, there's all kinds of things. Your podcast does a great job of, of him defending Sandusky. And as soon as the trial ends, he comes out, comes public, and then gets paid by Penn State. So his testimony is critical for the Sandusky trial, and now we know who he is. So if he if he's willing to get paid, then he should be willing to testify. Um, and the other thing is, now I wasn't clear about this in the podcast. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, but I'm curious. Did he testify at one of the appeals? Is that what you said at the podcast? And what did he say there? Because I wasn't sure. Okay. We said. So the, the the real story of Alan Myers is just amazing. Um, and and the media has been amazingly uncurious about, about who the boy in the shower is. When Myers came out as victim two through his attorneys about a month after the trial, not one that I could ever find, not one media outlet everything even asked so why didn't he testify Where, where's the testimony that, that was never even an issue uh, which should be the first question instead because by that point jerry Sanusky is a convicted pedophile now, there's zero question that anyone that comes forward in any way must be telling the truth when when i believe what actually happened here is that alan myers knew he was not sexually abused by jerry Sanusky, uh was convinced by his attorney andrew Schubin, for whom his mother other once worked as a secretary, uh, and Schumann is this DUI 
attorney of state college who's campaigning and advertising for Sandusky accusers and ends up representing at least nine of them, making millions and millions of dollars for the umbrella law firm, firm Ross Feller Casey. And that, by the way, that Casey is the brother of the senator from Pennsylvania, Bob Casey. And so a very high profile, high powered law firm that Shubin is basically acting as a bird dog scout for. And so Shubin, what I believe happened is he makes a deal with Myers and says, look, I know you don't want to put, I don't think they said these words, but I think it was a dance. Uh, you know, I know you don't want to put your friend behind bars. Jerry's going down. He's a pedophile. Uh, and, but look, uh, you don't have to testify. But after uh, words, uh, let's go ahead and make some money from this. By the way, um, and the testimony that you referred to, Myers eventually did testify years later at one of Jerry Sandusky's appeal hearings, in which his answer to the question, where were you during the trial, is, I don't remember. And this, this is when it was the allegation that was based on substance that Schumann had hid him in a cabin uh, so no one could find him during the trial because he was afraid, I think Schumann was, that before the trial, the defense found Myers and forced him to testify that Allen might actually tell the truth and blow the money. Uh, uh, now, I was at Alan Myers' testimony in 2016 at Jerry Sinesky's appeal hearing, and uh, it was a farce. Uh, I believe he said, I don't remember, at least 33, 34 times, uh, he, he, things that were ridiculous that he had no memory of. He could not remember where the picture of him in his Marine uniform and Jerry Sandusky arm in arm uh, had been taken. It was taken at his wedding, uh, which is, uh, you know, an absurdity that you you don't know that. Uh, by the way, that photo was used in Jerry Sandusky's resignation letter from the Second Mile Charity, which is an awfully strange thing to do for a criminal mastermind, if you're Jerry Sandusky, to in your resignation letter from the Second Mile Charity, which has been your source of all your victims, that you're going to use the photo of one Second Mile kid and use the name of one Second Mile kid. And it happens to be Alan Myers, the kid you raped in a shower as witnessed by Mike McCreary. Now, come on. Not only is that yeah. ridiculous, there's no way that you can be a criminal mastermind and do that. That didn't happen because Alan Myers was never sexually abused by Jerry Sandusky, period. So let's go to the other um, victim that I think, again, when you when, to remind the listener, Sandusky was tried co collectively for all of these and their individual counts, but the evidence is being presented all at one trial, um, which, which is the problem here. So if you want to say he's guilty for all the ones I'm not talking about, we can have that discussion. Um, my argument is, though, when you look at justice, you got to think about it in terms of what is the just thing. Um, and these things are unjust from my perspective. Is the janitor story. Okay. So now, I, 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 let me set the table here for make sure I'm right. There is a gentleman who testifies at the trial that his friend, who's another janitor, saw a boy getting raped in a shower. Okay. So Bob, whatever his name was, I can't remember his name, Tom or something like that, who's at trial, he did not see it. His friend saw it. His friend cannot testify because he has dementia now. Um, the only evidence that we have linking any of this to Sandusky is potentially the Mike McQuarrie episode, you could say. But the problem is, is that the guy, when he gives the, the janitor with dementia, he says it wasn't Sandusky. 
right? So he says for some reason it wasn't Sandusky. So it's weird. Um, so this should not be a trial. It's hearsay, it seems like to me. I'm not a lawyer. It seems like hearsay A. Um, B, here you have, again, grown men witnessing something horrific, not doing anything. Um, I, this was just a train wreck story. When you started telling it, I'm like, what is going like how how is this presented as evidence at trial? This sounds like you've seen the show Prison Break, like they're always trying to get the appeals and the judges being paid off. Like this sounds like that. Like, how is this allowed as evidence? Thank you for raising the janitor issue because it doesn't get nearly enough attention. Uh, the janitor issue alone. So the gender issue, you know, like how this isn't enough for a new trial, I have no idea. The janitors have been used by the news media and by Louis Free, who did the free report about all this, as major evidence of a Penn State cover-up, that even the janitors were so intimidated. I mean, the janitors did not work for Joe Paterno. Uh, and there's no evidence that Joe Paterno ever fired any janitors or anything like that. But the, the, the narrative was that the janitors were somehow so afraid of the Penn State football culture that they covered up this sex abuse that they had witnessed on an unknown date uh, sometime around the year 2000. Um, and, you know, during football season, apparently. Um, uh, and, and so there, there are so many problems with this. So let me just go through them uh, quickly. The uh, alleged direct witness is a guy by the name of James Calhoun. As you said, James Calhoun did not testify at trial. Now, the way the prosecution got this story into evidence without a witness or without a victim was that they claimed that the, through an excited utterance exemption, that hearsay evidence should be allowed. And they told the judge, who was completely in the for the prosecution. They told the judge, we have two janitors that are willing to testify that James Calhoun told them that he had seen Jerry Sandusky abusing a boy in, in, in the locker area. All right? Now, now, that's a problem legally, right off, off the bat. But the, the problems are far greater than even that. Uh, number one, the second janitor never testifies at trial. So they got it into evidence based on a lie. Now, what happened to that second janitor? I don't know. Uh, I'm very curious <laughs> as to why that second janitor did not testify. But I can assure you it's not because the prosecution was very confident that he was going to be a good witness. Uh, number two, the, uh, the, the witness who does testify, the hearsay witness, changes the location. He changes the location in which this occurred which should be very troubling for an episode without a victim, without a date, without a contemporaneous report, and where you're a hearsay witness of something that happened at least 10 years earlier. But then, well after conviction, we learn, and maybe John Mandola, Jerry these defense attorneys, most dramatic mistake in the entire trial, although it's hard to, because there's a lot. Um, but maybe his most obvious mistake is that we learned that guess what? The prosecution did interview James Calhoun, the alleged direct witness to this episode. And guess what? He was asked, who did he see? He was asked three times. And 
three times he denied emphatically that it was Jerry Sadowski. He said clear as day. It what? It was not Jerry Sadowski I saw. Now, this is a theory of mine, but I think it makes sense. Because if you think about this logically, if James Calhoun, the prosecution believes he has dementia, why are they interviewing him to begin with? Because his testimony has no value if he has dementia. What I think happened is they interviewed him, didn't get the answers that they wanted, and said, thank you very much, Mr. Calhoun. Sorry about your dementia. <laughs> That's what happened. And then somehow they convinced they convinced Joe Mandola, Joe, don't you dare use the interview of this poor dementia victim uh, against him. And Joe, for some reason, went along with it. So the jury never saw that there was an the only interview that I'm aware of, anyone's aware of, with James Calhoun on the record, saying it was not Jerry Sandusky. So you have, you have no, no direct witness. The direct witness contradicts the only hearsay witness. And again, there's no date. There's no contemporaneous report. And there's no victim to testify. I mean, you, I'm sorry. If you tried, you, and by the way, the hearsay witness changes the location of the details. If you tried to concoct a scenario that was more full of bullshit, I don't think you possibly could. And yet, to show you the inherently illegitimate nature of this Salem witch trial, Jerry Sandusky was convicted on all five counts with regard to the janitor issue. He wasn't even convicted of all five counts on the McQuarrie episode. But that's how insane this was. And so thank you for raising the janitor thing because uh, it's it's unbelievable. Okay, so the pushback I will give there is, I heard you make the point about Paterno and the janitors. That, I don't think that works. So I think if you're there, I don't care where the org chart says Joe Pye is. If you piss off Joe Pye, he can you 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 at least think he can get you fired. Now I'm not saying that makes you cover up sexual abuse or any of that, but I do think the janitors at um, Alabama know they piss off Saban. It doesn't matter what the org chart says; okay. they're going to be fired. To be clear, so, Jerry Sandusky was to be clear. To be clear, Jerry Sandusky was not even on the Penn State staff at this time at the uh, McQueer episode sure. or the the janitor episode. All right, so so the Understood. whole concept Understood. is preposterous. Okay. Yeah, I mean, no, no, I don't think I don't think it takes me for the larger point, but I do think it is fair to 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 believe the janitors are concerned about their job. That doesn't justify their inaction. So here's the problem. Here's one of the things all I'm mentioning is all I'm mentioning is that there was no there was no technical power from Paterno to do that, nor any evidence. Sure. See, that's why I raised the issue. Yeah, sure. There's no evidence that Paterno ever abused his power to get rid of janitors or other people that he didn't like. That didn't, there's no evidence of that. Sure. So what do we, how do we think about this? This is one of the questions I, I walked away with is you have McQuery and you have the janitors. Neither should be admissible at trial, I don't think. And I think it's alone enough to get Sandusky a retrial. But what do you do with those two stories, which they're not identical, but you have one with a boy being raped to shower potentially from a query, and you have these janitors who are who are different time potential, different place, but they have a similar story. Is this a randomness of events, or how do we get those two stories at trial? I think that's a fair question someone could ask. In other words, you're asking me what really happened. 
and, and so sure. so she, here's what I think. Here's what I think really happened. I think that Mike McQuarrie uh, saw for two or three seconds Jerry Sandusky horsing around with a 13 year old boy he thought to be his son in the shower. It upset him because he was not expecting to see that. It it happened on December 29th, which is about as quiet a day as you can possibly find on campus. Um, Mike McQuarrie, I believe, had just been watching the Peach Bowl on television, was bored, went over to the locker room. He heard the showers going. He heard some slapping sounds. I believe he went in uh, to that area. I mean, he did. Other people say that where he was, it's not possible to see what he claims. But there, I believe he, he was suspecting that a man and a woman were having sex in the shower. That's what he was expecting to see. And I can certainly understand if that was your expectation. You turn the corner and all of a sudden you see Jerry Zanowski horsing around with a, a naked boy. That would be uh, very upsetting. And and I have no problem with that making you uncomfortable. I have no problem with you raising a question about that, telling people about it. I have zero issue with any of that. In that. Um, and, and I believe that's what happened. I believe that it got eventually passed up the food chain very Tentatively so, I have some detailed explanations for why Mike McQuarrie, from both an offensive and defensive perspective and his own self-interest, waited six weeks uh, to tell Joe Paterno about this. But but I don't believe that there was any sort of a crime that Mike McQuarrie witnessed. And, and his own testimony is consistent with that because he never says that he saw an actual sex act. He just... He called it sexual. He never tells us what sex act he's talking about. He says he did not see uh, penetration. Uh, he told Franco Harris, uh, Pro Football Hall of Famer, at Joe Paterno's funeral in, in an interview that we have. You can find Franco Paterno.com. It's extraordinary where Franco you know, basically puts his last so of truth around Mike McQuarrie and, and comes the way convinced that Mike McQuarrie didn't see anything of a sexual nature. Asking him very detailed questions about what he saw and what he didn't see, and so, um, so I, I think that that uh, was was an episode that that was at worst something that was dumb and inappropriate for Jerry to be doing alone on a on a Friday night in the middle of, of winter break uh, with a thirteen year old boy. Uh, I think it's now seen through the prism of the Catholic Church scandal, which hadn't happened publicly yet in in the year uh, 2000. And so I think our sensibilities are are a bit uh, biased now. And we look at that as far more nefarious than we would have in maybe 2000. So I, I don't believe that there was any crime at all in, in that episode. Now, as far as the janitors, what I think happened was that these prosecutors were desperate for something to back up McQuarrie. And so they started asking anybody and everybody around the program did you hear anything, see anything? Is there anything at all that that made you uncomfortable? And my guess is Calhoun may have seen some sort of an act. Uh, who knows? He might have seen a gay sex act uh, uh, involving somebody else from many years before. And who knows what his recollection is. But what, what the prosecution is now making it clear there are in the market for sex abuse stories involving Jerry Sandusky. And so somehow through the through the uh, whisper down the lane, 
this turns into something that it was not. And Calhoun on record says it wasn't Jerry Sandusky. Who knows what it was? Again, I have not spoken to Calhoun. Maybe he does have some semblance of dementia, but but the reality is there's no evidence of it. And and the story doesn't make sense, and the story doesn't hold up, and it doesn't even have a victim, yeah. which again in this case is absurd. In this case, it's absurd that you can't find the victim because of all the circumstances I already discussed. Yep. And so that's so that's my um challenge to the listener is I think from my perspective whatever you want to think about all the other victims and you've got 50 hours of podcasts that deal with this um, the stance of a retrial is not controversial because we've I've feel like I've raised two cases in which they were tried under one trial that shouldn't have been there and it prejudices the jury and therefore you should get a retrial so for the listeners who are like, oh, I can't, you know, Sand- listen, there's some stuff that Sandusky does that I, I'm not sure I can get there with you, John. I think your podcast is very compelling, but I think a retrial at minimum from the evidence just we talked about on this podcast and your podcast is the only logical conclusion um, that you could come to. Some people will go further to where you're at. Um, and, and so, but I think starting here gives a window into, huh, I didn't realize that, that there was problems at trial like this. There's problems in the testimony, problems in the evidence. And once you realize that, if you care about justice, which I keep going back to, then you have to say we need a retrial. Now, maybe the result will be yeah. the rest of the victims come forward. I, I don't know, but I think that's the only proper step. Now, the biggest miss in the podcast, and this is unquestionable, the biggest miss in your podcast is that you said, and I quote, Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. That, sir, is not true. <laughs> I mean, no, no, no. You said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said he killed. You said he killed himself. No, no, no. That is not true. That is not true. <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein was murdered in jail. So <laughs> I don't know how you could come to that conclusion based upon your covering of this trial. Well, um, Jeffrey Epstein did kill himself, <laughs> and, and, and the reason, and the reason why we know that is because have you ever been in a federal prison before? No, I have not been in one. Okay, so if you're in a federal prison. Uh, Everyone knows exactly who is in there at any moment. And so therefore, at that time of night, you would have the most limited list of suspects of that crime in the history of crimes. And therefore, uh, for that to go unsolved would require an extraordinary conspiracy for which there is no apparent motivation nor any evidence of it. So you're making any, uh, if you want, if you have evidence of it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all ears. You have a incredibly high uh, threshold. Uh, and so uh, if you think that that's uh, somehow discrediting, then that's your problem. As far, I want to make one last point though. Well, I'm, I'm giving you um, a hard time more than anything. We can have the Epstein discussion another day, but go ahead. Well, no, but look, but it's important to point out that yes, we've destroyed these two of the 10 episodes. There are eight other episodes and or eight other accusers that actually did testify at trial. And every single one of them, to varying degrees, has massive, massive problems. And if you don't believe Mike McQuarrie and you don't believe victim number one in this case, Aaron Fisher, then you cannot believe the rest because everything flows from those two stories. Those, those are the pillars 
of the entire case. It is absolutely, basically mathematically impossible for Aaron Fisher to be lying, him being the only accuser for two years in this investigation. And then they get Mike McQuarrie fall in their lap. And basically what they do is they have a hook and a bait and they go fishing in this pond of second mile kids who are now adults. I mean, let's not forget that. These are all adults when they testify at Jerry Sandusky's trial. And most of them have had terrible lives. Most of them have broken or come from all come from broken homes. That's why they were in the second mile to begin with. They've got marital issues, money issues. And so uh, this is a pond and that it's incredibly easy to go fishing in and find a handful. And that's all they found, which is kind of amazing. I, it's a remarkable testament to the loyalty to Jerry Sandusky that they could only find eight of these guys to go with at trial, considering the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews that they did fishing for. Uh, potential accusers. And uh, Aaron Fisher is not telling the truth. I've had over a dozen on the record interviews with people very, very close to Aaron Fisher with no reason. In fact, family members of his, including his, his, uh, his soon-to-be ex-wife, uh, Mallory Fisher, who have raised grave questions about his story. And so McQuarrie's not telling the truth. Fisher's not telling the truth. Inherently, all the other stories then are not believable. But if you go through each of them individually, they all have their own massive problems. And uh, I just want to make sure that that's clear. And then the ultimate, and this is, I guess I'm amazed that you, you you're positive that Epstein uh, didn't <laughs> kill himself, but yet you're now, you're somehow still believing that Jerry Sandusky abused young boys when we provided the medical evidence that that just wasn't possible. No, and that okay. was yeah. that was yeah, yeah. It's yeah, a huge, yeah, that's yeah. a huge, right. huge, huge bombshell in the in the podcast. That is a bombshell. To be clear, my stance is um, there's a proverb that says that one side sounds good until you hear the other. Uh, and so what what I'm articulating is that um, regardless of what anyone else wants to say, the basis for victim two and whatever the janitors was eight or ten, I can't remember. That alone is cause for a mistrial. So we can have a discussion about the gonads being shrunken and, and all this other stuff. That's all fine and dandy. But these two things alone are calls for a retrial. Now, what I'm saying is the fact that we now know from his medical records that during at least two of the key allegations and probably for most of it, not his entire life, Jerry Sandusky effectively had no testicles, sure. makes it absolutely physically impossible for many of these acts to have occurred, but even more than that, totally impossible for all of these men to have had intimate sexual contact with Jerry Sandusky and nobody mentioned this, even though it was right. a golden so, ticket yes. to millions of dollars. Okay. We're at an hour. You've got uh, two more minutes. Cause I know we're up against the clock here. Um, so yes, just to be clear, you, you put the, the point that you make in the podcast about the boy who claims to be raped a hundred times um, and it's brutal and there's no evidence ever found. Uh, the gonad testimony, that's that's very compelling. Um, the changing of the stories is very compelling. Um, I'm trying to think there was one other thing in there off the top of my head that it's like 50 hours. So yeah, <laughs> I don't have it all memorized like you do. Um, there's plenty of compelling things. I, I remember when I was, I remember where I was. I was coming back from Mississippi when I heard the gonad stuff. And I was just like, 
what is what is going on here? Like this is this is unbelievable. Two victims at the same time. And so uh, then the eight year sting operation. There's the, listen, there's 50 hours of podcast. I had an hour. I want to pick all these two things because I think I can make an argument for a retrial on that alone. Um I had to I had to think about all of the other things, Sarah Gannon and this her and this it's just a, it's a it's a mess. It's a hot mess, is what it is. And your Absolutely. podcast is fantastic. It's with the benefit of hindsight. The website is framingpaterno.com at um what you had on Twitter at Zygmunt Freud. Uh yeah, at Zygmunt Freud on Twitter. Um, thank you for doing this. Um, it's fantastic. Enjoy the podcast, enjoy the discussion. Uh, when you do with the benefit of hindsight, why I was wrong about Epstein, I look forward to coming on that podcast and talking with you about that. <laughs> Fair enough. And listeners, thank you so much, and we'll be back next time.